You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's scripture reading is from John 7, 32 to 52. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he has done? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, my name is Clint, one of the pastors here, along with Nathan and Ryan and Kyle. If you're just joining us, this is our 17th week in the book of John as we seek to understand his accounting of Jesus' life, the good news that comes with Jesus and through him. If you haven't already, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7. Last week, um, we missed church, the Moors did, we were in Phoenix for a soccer tournament and from Phoenix, we drove through the mountains and through two separate blizzards. And I don't know if it was the blizzard or the white knuckles or the life that was flashing before my eyes or I think it was Nathan's sermon. Uh, he just opened up with this affection for you all. And, and we weren't there for his little greetings of affection. And I had this little lump in my throat. And I was like, maybe it was because we lost in the tournament really bad too. <laughs> this lump in the throat. But we do. We love you guys and we missed you. We're, we're, it's a blessing for us to be your pastors, to serve you in this way. 
and we want you to know that. We're excited about what God's doing here. We're excited about where God's taking us, individual levels, corporately. We're really excited about this next round of uh, of potential new members. You should have gotten an email this week. If you're already a member of this church, you got an email this week, and it had some instructions in it for you how to pray and how to think through the process of our new potential members coming in. So we look forward to that. We're humbled and grateful to the Lord for what he is doing here. Let's focus our hearts and minds this evening on John chapter 7. This part of the country, at least, is in a pretty serious drought right now. It doesn't take a meteorologist or a water engineer to know that low precipitation and high winds and unusually warm temperatures this time of year leads to potentially disastrous summers full of dangerous fires. Maybe, maybe you don't quite feel it in, a, in an, any sort of immediate sense, except you can't have a campfire when you're camping, and maybe you have to turn your sprinklers on at a different time of the day so people don't shame you for having them on so long when we're running low on water. I can tell the skiers and snowboarders out there whose lips are starting to puff out about how bad and slow of a year it's been. As a city, we're pretty good about handling and, and, and weathering these droughts. Albuquerque has moved from drawing all their water out of the ground, which there's not quite as much in the ground as they first thought years ago when they tried to measure it, to now drawing water off the Rio Grande and out of lakes that they've purchased, right? All that water is owned by somebody. The rights to it is owned by somebody. And the city's getting pretty good about using the river in the high years and using the ground in the off years. And in the, in the drought, drought years, letting the water soak in deeply to replenish what's underneath us so that we might draw it out at a later time. Historically, rivers and springs, they formed oases for populations to grow in. And the less developed those water resources are and the ability to handle droughts and floods, the more dangerous it is to live in the location. And historically, that was true for the people of Jesus' day as well. In our text tonight, we find the Jewish people celebrating their annual Feast of Tabernacles. It's a harvest festival, essentially. Sort of like uh, Thanksgiving meets uh, Native American Feast Day, which I guess the first Thanksgiving actually was that. But, but the thanking of the, of the deity for the harvest and asking for more in the next year being consciously aware of how dry it is even now as we pick these plants, hoping that God will give as much water as he gave in the last year, if indeed he did. This festival was commanded by God to take place during the fall. And as they celebrated it, they, they, they very likely would have been wondering, is God going to provide? Thank you, God, for providing what we needed this year, in a very temporal, physical sense. Lord, will you provide what we need in the days ahead? Thanksgivings and also longings mixed in their hearts. And underneath all of this are very strong spiritual interpretations, spiritual thanksgivings, and spiritual longings of things of old and things they still needed. And Jesus, he stands ready to use All of this in this ceremony to reveal more about who he is and what he has come to do. That brings us to our outline. 
this evening. In the midst of this grand holiday, this controversial man, Jesus, he's still around, and he's the talk of the town. We're going to focus on essentially the four main characters in our text and try to uncover its meaning as we move. We'll see these characters and what they're doing. The Pharisees, they're deciding. Jesus, he's providing. The people are dividing. And Nicodemus seems to be sliding. Let's get right into it. The Pharisees are deciding. The Pharisees really do think At this point, that they have got Jesus pinned. He's done enough. He's said enough. He's opposed their system, their integrity as leaders, enough. And to them, that's enough for formal charges, criminal charges. Round up the officers. Send them out with orders. It's time to take action. Last week, the very last verse of the section that Nathan preached said that many of the people of the feast were, were seemingly beginning to put two and two together as to who Jesus was by asking, will God's promised king, this Christ who has come, will he do more signs than this man has done? In other words, who else could this guy be but God's anointed king sent to rescue his people? He turned water into wine, a lot of it. He healed the official son. We saw it. He fed all of us out of one little kid's lunchbox. Not to mention that as the other gospel writers report, by this point he has cast out many demons too and healed many more who were sick. This Jesus character carries the one true God's authority, And some are beginning to see that. And that is not okay with the Jewish establishment. Since these leaders think that they have him pinned, it's time to act. It's now or never, they, they, they say. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. They called the cops on him. These officers would have been uh, trained temple guards whose main role is to keep the peace in the temple precinct of the city. They they would have been from the tribe of the Levites, specifically commissioned to make sure that worship was done just how God described in his law. And perhaps by this time, even more as the Jewish leaders prescribed that it be done. These weren't just muscle either. They were were trained theologically to be able to, to recognize right worship and to regulate it with their muscle and with their authority. Recognize what is right, recognize what is wrong according to God's law, according to his words spoken in the Old Testament to the prophets of old through Moses himself. Now Jesus apparently finding out about this arrest warrant, he says right away that their ability to capture and hold him is Limited, because he's heading out soon. Verse 33, Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that that we will not find him? 
does he intend to go to the dispersia among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I'm going, you cannot come. John loves as he unfolds who Jesus is to use irony. And he's using it in a few places in our text today, including here. The Jews are wondering out loud to one another, where exactly does this unruly, untaught, miracle man, who in our opinion is too big for his theological britches, think that he's going, that we will not have authority and be able to get him? No. Must be among the unclean Gentiles, those Greeks. I guess he's right. We won't dare go there and mess up our perfectly primped religiousness. But did you catch it? That's not what Jesus said. He didn't say, where I'm going, you won't be willing to go. He said, you cannot go where I'm going. Jesus is headed to heaven. The place he's from, to the God and Father he's known forever to the God and Father that sent him there in the first place. He knows his time is coming and that when he dies, he will not stay dead, but will overcome and defeat death by death and resurrect three days later and ascend to his Father, having accomplished the mission for which his Father sent him in the first place. The perfect life will have been lived. The sinner's death we deserved will have been Died, and ultimately the dismantling of satanic and human power set up against his redemptive mission to win his people and his world back forever will have been accomplished. He will undo the curse. He will wipe out sin on the cross. He will end sickness and sorrow, rolling back all of the effects now and all of their presence later. One saved soul at a time. One rebirth at a time. The authorities may think that they have him cornered, but his out is beyond their imagination, and it shows their hearts have been darkened and hardened to who he actually is, where he actually is from, what he's here to do, and where he's headed. These leaders have decided, all right, they think they have this guy pinned down, but they are the ones who are actually cornered now. Their time of leading God's people astray by their religious performance that minimizes God's holy standard is over. And their time of judging others' sin more harshly than their own, pretending sin is only this external thing that is merely a mistake and can be minimized, those days are over. Jesus is here, and he is taking over. He's taking this whole ceremony that they're having, this celebrative hope and thanksgiving, and everything that's behind it, he's taking it back from those who've held it hostage for far too long. So though the Pharisees are deciding, Jesus is providing. We need to understand this ceremony a bit more in order to understand exactly what Jesus is saying through this whole living water, come to me and drink statement. Remember, it was, a, it was a festival designed to thank God for agricultural harvest, thanking him for, for 
uh, feeding them this year, but also thanking them, thanking him for feeding them years and years ago in the desert as they wandered and God sent faithfully manna from heaven and sprung water faithfully from the rock. Even more, it was a looking forward, not just a looking back in the distant past, but looking forward in the distant future to a day when God would provide salvation and rescue his people forever. So yes, there are physical elements in this festival symbolizing recent and not so recent physical provision and, 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 and prayer for outstanding physical need. But all the more, these elements of the festival symbolize greater spiritual past provision from God and spiritual outstanding need for the future. And Jesus, he commandeers it all. Every one of these symbols, he commandeers. All of these thanksgivings and longings, he commandeers in order to further reveal who he is. So at the festival, the the priest would come down each day of the seven-day week, and and Nathan talked about it a few weeks ago, but he would scoop essentially like a, a golden pitcher into the pool there in Jerusalem, and he would parade through the streets with this pitcher of water, and as he went... Everyone would yell as he went by, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, thanking God for living water he had provided for their crops this year and for their ancestors so many years before. This sustaining, life-giving water. And after parading through the streets, the priest would arrive at the temple, pour the water out as an offering to the Lord. And on the last day of this long Thanksgiving feast, this water parade and pouring ceremony would happen seven times. People would be captivated by this process and what they were meant to think about and focus on during it. This is the context into which Jesus speaks, verse 37 through 39. Look at it with me, if you would. On the last day of the feast, seven parades of water moving. The great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said, verse 39, about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus here, he's using this water ceremony and all of the past memories and future longings that are symbolized here, claiming that he is at the very center of it all, which is a place that only God, the God of Israel, can claim to be. And so everyone around realizes he's claiming to be the God of Israel, the very God of Israel, the one that made them and sustains them and who must save them. This water parade points backwards, it points forwards. Remember the rock of Mirabah in the wilderness? Those of you reading with us through the Bible in a year, you'll have this fresh in your memory. You remember why it was called Mirabah, this rock that Moses was told to speak to, but a frustration and lack of faith struck twice instead. God still faithfully provided it for the people, this life-giving water. But Mirabah, 
means quarreling because the people were quarreling with one another and with God. Exodus 17 says that the people were complaining against against God, asking, is the Lord really with us or not? We don't have water. God must not be with us. He must not be for us. We're really thirsty. And I don't want to minimize how thirsty they were. They were in the middle of nowhere. That's a serious concern. When was the last time you didn't have water and didn't know how you were going to get it for a long, long time? So let's not minimize their temptation here. But where'd they go? To accusing their provider of not loving them, of not being with them and not being for them. The audacity of the people, of us, when we shake our fists at God because we don't have what we think we need. This God, who they were utterly dependent upon, had just saved them, rescued them by miracle after miracle after miracle out of the hands of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, now grumbling in unfaithfulness against their Savior because because they were really, really thirsty. God wants them to be thirsty. Don't you see? He wants us to have longings. He wants us to be spiritually thirsty. He wanted them to be spiritually thirsty. And he wants them to be spiritually satisfied, even though they're physically thirsty. He wants to show what's inside their hearts. And every situation we find ourselves in, he wants to show us our hearts too. What comes out in the wilderness? Faithful Humble, quiet dependence upon the Lord for provision? No. Grumbling, complaining, quarreling with one another and with God. And, and, and what do we see here in John 7? But God's people grumbling, murmuring, quarreling with that very same God who provided for them in the desert. The one who last week, the weeks before, claimed to be the bread from heaven in John 6. And this week is claiming to be the miraculous life-giving water from heaven as well. Paul brings this, the, the, the dynamic of this physical overlap with spiritual in, into stark focus in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says, all of Israel drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. And this word rock is a common name for God in the Old Testament. So in these desert wanderings, God was showing them with physical bread from heaven and physical water from the rock that they need him only. Not just physically, they need him, more importantly, spiritually. They don't need anything the nations have to offer physically. They don't need it. They're tempted to want it. They're tempted to go back and get it. God would provide. And they don't need anything the nations will have to offer them ahead in the land of Canaan. For God will provide it for all the spiritual nourishment they need. And Jesus, though they did not know his name then, he was enough for them then. He's enough for them now. And he is enough, friend, for us forever. Jesus is the God of Israel, the one who rescued them out of slavery 
and gave them the law in the wilderness. But he's not just the the God who came to be with them in the wilderness of old. He's come to the wilderness of now. Their spiritual barrenness to provide and to satisfy. He's not only the one they should be remembering. He is also the one they ought to be anticipating. He's right under their noses and they don't even know it. And Christian, I think too many times for us, he's right under our nose and we don't know it. In addition to looking backward, they should be looking forward. In in addition to us looking backward to the cross for our salvation, we should be looking forward to what Jesus is going to do in the end when he brings a culmination to all things and living in light of it now, knowing that his spirit is in us. If we string together several Old Testament prophets, including Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and, and Ezekiel and Joel, we begin to capture this deep and rich anticipation of God's saving work that was coming and that the, these Israelites watching this ceremony no doubt would have been thinking of. Here's what it might have sounded like in a typical Jewish heart or mind as these passages came to their thoughts while watching the high priest carry and pour out this water from Isaiah. In the day of God's salvation, with joy, God's people will draw water from the wells of salvation. They will neither hunger nor thirst. And this pouring out of God's spirit will be like Pouring water on a thirsty land, Isaiah says. Streams on the dry ground. This language of inner satisfaction and transformation that was to come, it would have further called to mind a string of prophecies anticipating new hearts spiritually. The exchange of failed external religion for a remade heart that knows and experiences God on a regular basis And that hungers to do his will more and more in their lives. Is this not what we see in Jeremiah 31? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And Ezekiel, he connects it straight to God's spirit and the pouring out of that spirit. In Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In the Old Testament, God put his spirit on leaders often, but temporarily and generally for a specific task or a specific season, and then he would remove it. But here, God promises something more thorough and and more permanent and more widespread. 
Joel chapter 2, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. This thing is going global. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved and will receive this life-giving spirit. And finally, the very words that Jesus is quoting here in John 7 are out of Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters that your soul might live. Is your soul alive? Have you drunk of Jesus yet? Do you believe in him? Have you turned from sin and trusted in Jesus to forgive you from Sin? If so, his spirit is yours. It lives inside of you, and it's flowing inside of you. And we ought to see it flowing inside of you and out of you. Jesus, by saying he is the source of living water, first, a few chapters ago, to the Samaritan woman, and now to the very heart of the Jewish people in the midst of one of their most cherished festivals, he has fully taken over. Every promise of salvific work wrapped up in this season of celebration. And he's claiming to be the God who will save them and who will provide this life-transforming spirit to his people in a new way and in a forever covenant. Old covenant minds blown and new covenant minds created. New covenant hearts created but not quite yet in John 7. Not quite yet, not till he dies, not till he is glorified and sends his spirit as a seal. Jesus is promising the work of regeneration here, the the, the promised rebirth of the Holy Spirit that he told Nicodemus he, he had to have and anyone had to have in order to see and experience and be a part of the kingdom of God. Sinful and spiritually parched souls will be made alive and will be satisfied, Jesus is saying. If only they would recognize who I am, turn from their sin and trust in me. And he's gonna continue to unfold this for us. And the apostles, once he's gone and resurrected, by that same Holy Spirit will continue to unfold this for us in God's word. And the reality is, is that some in the first century would come to believe but many would not. And the reality is for us today, some will come to believe, but most will not. When Jesus eventually is arrested, everyone right down to his closest friends, they forsake him, but when Jesus then comes back from the dead, not all, but many repent of their foolish, dark self-love, turn to trust solely in Jesus Christ forgiveness. And because their sins are fully forgiven and they trust in him, Jesus both reshapes the desires of their hearts toward himself and satisfies those desires on a daily basis by his spirit. Jesus gives every Christian who trusts in him all of himself, his presence forever in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. The God of all gods, the King of all kings, the maker of heaven and earth, 
dwelling in this tiny little heart. Every one of us. Sin is forgiven. Who needs a temple now? Who needs atonement now? By the blood of animals. Jesus satisfies our need, makes us new, and that spirit satisfies every longing of your heart. At least it should. More than rain would do in a drought-stricken land, more than bread to a famished mouth. Whatever we think we need, we need God more. And Jesus is God. And he's ready to pour himself out on you. Do you believe it, Christian? Do you believe that God's spirit lives inside of you? dwells in you daily, has sealed you for salvation, is transforming you day by day to believe in him more, to love him more, to obey him more for the rest of your life? Or do you need more medication? Or do you need to look at what is forbidden one more time? Just one more time. Or do you need to vent just one more time because they really deserve it? This time? Are all your longings, all your fears, all your insecurities, are they calmed by Christ's work and Christ's spirit inside of you? Are you experiencing living water flowing within you? Jesus is providing. Are you satisfying yourself on Him? Or are you looking elsewhere for that? The Pharisees are deciding. The, uh, Jesus is providing. The people are dividing. Verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, no, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So just really quickly, confusion here is, is leading to inaction, right? God promised Moses that, that a final prophet would come. And, and he promised later David that a final and forever king would come. And the people here are missing that that's going to be the same person. And Jesus is the answer to both of those questions. The prophet is to come, speaking God's truth, mediating between holy God and sinful people, like Moses, but perfectly and forever. And the Christ is to come, the anointed king of God, bringing the authority and reign of God and victory over God's enemies, like David, but forever and perfectly. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the prophet. And instead of recognizing this, that he's standing right in front of them, this conversation quickly degrades into just an argument about Galilee and, and geography. They say, no, he can't, he can't be from Galilee. Listen to his accent. He's clearly from Galilee. He grew up there in Nazareth, just right in the middle of Galilee. They don't realize that he was born in the town of David to a son of David, Joseph. Why didn't Jesus just say right then, this would have solved a lot of problems if he would have just said, hey guys, I'm actually born, I was born in Bethlehem. 
I didn't do that. <laughs> Yo, I was born in Bethlehem. My dad, Joseph. Uh, no, he leaves the tension. He leaves it there. He's satisfied to leave it there and to reveal himself in his time. Verse 45, though. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law, they are accursed. So these, these officers seem genuinely torn here. And as, as trained the, theological temple guarding policemen, they aren't sure they should be arresting this guy just yet. No one ever spoke like this man, they say. He seems to be connecting all the dots that our Old Testament longings and, 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 and desires were, were aimed at. And he's got the miracles to back it up, too. But the Pharisees, they won't have it. They're too far gone. They're out of their law-loving minds. And, and as the possibility of belief gets a little too close to comfort into their officers, they, they show their true colors about the people in verse 49. Oh, the crowd, they, they don't know the law like we do. They're accursed anyway. No wonder they're deceived. No wonder they're considering this man and who he seems to be claiming to be. Anyone who disagrees with us or agrees in any way with them, oh, you're, you're cursed too. Doling out curses as if they have that right anyway. Again, this is dripping with irony from the Apostle John. That's exactly what Jesus has come to solve. The crowd may not know the law perfectly, but the Pharisees have gotten it so wrong it's barely noticeable at this time. And Jesus, he has his eternally permanent pen out, dipped in his own blood, and he's about to start writing his true law on the hearts of people in Holy Spirit script. He's poised to do it, and he will do it. Speaking of which, the last point, Nicodemus Maybe sliding. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, back in chapter 3, for us, and who was one of them, one of the Pharisees, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and, and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Just as a quick but further Indication that the Jewish leader's moral compass is, is totally broken and, and, their, and their integrity is tied up and gagged and, and thrown in the trunk. Prophets did actually occasionally come from Galilee. Jonah, very likely Elijah, even Nahum. But who's counting, right? Whatever it takes to stay in control, whatever it takes to get this out of their minds. Though they are the ones out of their minds. Later in John 12, we see that the Lord has blinded the eyes of most of the leaders and hardened their hearts. Nevertheless, many, even the authorities, believed in him, John 12 says. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. 
For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So this division among the people, the, 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 the Pharisees fear that it seems to be creeping into their own ranks. Nicodemus, who Jesus told in the darkness that he must be born again, he now seems to at least be willing to push back on the leadership, give Jesus a fair shake. Nicodemus is maybe not yet ready to declare loyalty to Christ, but there does seem to have been some movement in his heart that perhaps is going to mature into dedication and identification publicly. In fact, John 19 tells us that Nicodemus personally brought 75 pounds of myrrh and spices to help prepare Jesus' crucified body for burial. Hardly the action of a rock-hard spiritual heart, wouldn't you say? He may not be ready to declare here and now in chapter 7 what later he seems to believe but he at least tries to slow down the plans of Christ's enemies with a procedural objection to their their swift movements to take out this miracle man. What we could be seeing here is the beginnings of a spirit-induced salvation transforming this man, Nicodemus. The rebirth that was required. Perhaps this is where Nicodemus is now. His conscience is tearing him up inside about Jesus but he's not quite ready to go public. This kind of radical repentance and transformation from self-righteousness and self-dependence, it may come in stages and reveal itself in stages in a person, but it's important to remember that knowing Jesus, it ultimately changes everything about a person. In fact, the gospel charms all of our fears of rejection, and it breaks the power and our addiction to people's approval. For we have in Christ the approval of our God and Father. In the end, there is no middle ground. We are all in process indeed, but there is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus, the gospel of grace that comes to us because of who Jesus is and what he has done in our place cannot land on people in a neutral way. If it seems neutral, it has landed in the negative. It's either received with joy or rejected with delay or contempt. The gospel is the aroma of life to some and the aroma of death to others, even if it is in the form of delay. There is no middle ground. So, who are you in this text Have you decided like the Pharisees or do you know someone who has? Heart's a little hard. It's darkened in the mind about who Jesus is. I don't want to believe it. His identity, his authority, his offer of salvation. There's there's sort of two, two, two forms of this being decided or hardened of heart. The super religious kind and the not so religious kind. The super religious kind it says, uh, I've got God's presence me, among, around me because I'm good. Self-righteousness reigns. My Christian-like behavior, to hell with grace, I'm a good boy. My good works will do me just fine. I'm, 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 I'm from good Christian stock, don't you know? I mean, 
mean, I've got a collar under a sweater. What more do you need? And then there's the not so religious, perhaps, but just as hardened, just as decided. Too smart to believe in these fairy tales about Jesus. Heaven? Who wants to go to heaven? Is this some sort of joke? You expect me to believe in heaven and hell? Really? Like that place really exists? Oh, and this thing called sin, isn't that really just an old-fashioned way to control people? Religious or not, we all need to recognize that our very maker is in our midst. He has indeed identified our need, and he has identified it as absolute. And absolute needs can only be met by absolute love and absolute justice that kiss in the person and the work the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They find their perfect harmony in him, and you will find their perfect harmony in him if you turn and if you trust. He is patient. He has been patient. Maybe you haven't quite decided like the Pharisees. Maybe you're more divided like the people and the officers. The crowd and the officers in this chapter, they seem curious about Jesus. They want to pin on him some spiritual significance in their lives. But they're fearful. The governing leadership who clearly opposed Jesus, I'm not going to go against them quite yet. Maybe, maybe you're curious about spiritual things. Here today to check out Christianity. Gone tomorrow to check out something else. Maybe, though, open to believing And who Jesus is, what he has done for you. But the cost to openly self-identify with Jesus, that just feels too, too much right now. It's true. Jesus is calling everything we've ever valued most in our lives into question. Perhaps you want to be forgiven of your sins. You want to be reconciled with God, but you don't want to give up your favorite sin Or you don't want your significant other to think you're some sort of Jesus freak, start treating you differently. You don't want your family to think you're weird, cut you out of their plans, or worse, out of their will. You don't want your friends to marginalize you. You just don't plain don't want God bugging you about every single decision that you make. Sticking his nose where it doesn't belong Can't I just call myself a Christian and love whoever and and whatever and however I want? Friends, Jesus won't have it. Those who drink from Jesus by repenting of their sins, trusting in him as the Spirit cleanses them from within, they will be saturated by the all-consuming floodwaters of his holy Spirit, and he will leave no stone of any heart that trusts in him unturned. No stone of any relationship we have, no stone of our jobs, no stone of our recreation, no stone in our wallet unturned. When we trust in Jesus, he makes us his. Not just by possession, but by our passion, too. To the non-Christian, friend, turn from your sin. Believe in Jesus. 
He will satisfy your soul. Any satisfaction that you think you've ever experienced will pale in comparison and actually be inversed by what Jesus is for you. To the Christian, keep turning. Keep trusting every day. He has saved you. He will continue to transform you by this living Holy Spirit water provided every day inside your heart. Let's pray for that now. Lord, the waters promised in your word from of old and in Jesus' proclamation here, we know, Lord, they point to the true refreshment that comes ultimately and only from you, by you, and in the person and work of your spirit that indwells us as your people. And as these living, these life-giving waters flow from the place of atonement, this temple, we remember Ezekiel's vision, water growing wider and wider and deeper and deeper and flowing out of the temple forever in the future, making eternal life possible for us, the worst of sinners, and for all the nations of the world. Lord, on this side of the cross, we know that at the culmination of all time, when Jesus returns to make all things right and finally and forever unites heaven and earth and forever and permanently redeems us, your people, and establishes forever your kingdom, we will see, as in the very last chapter of the Bible, a river now flowing from the throne of God. Instead of the temple, no more atonement needed. Lord, we know that it is accomplished and that we can trust in you for it. And we want those kinds of waters to flow in us now, tonight, as we sing, as we eat, as we drink, and as we look forward to drinking of him more this week and this month and forever in eternity. Satisfy us, we pray. In Jesus, in the most difficult of times, satisfy us, Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.